bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for giving us this time to gather together to fellowship as family in the unity of the faith by means of your grace and your love. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us time after time not just these things, but the practical outworking of them through vessels that you've used, vessels of mercy that you ordained from eternity past to bring glory to you, Father. Thank you for giving us purpose in this life, for reminding us of why you've left us here after salvation. That is the Great Commission itself. And thank you, Father, for equipping this ministry and clearing out any of the webs of the confusion regarding the gospel, which is really why we have the completed canon in the first place. Thank you for showing that us that this gospel has transcended all of human history, that it existed before human history even began. We know that Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for this perspective and the continued perspective that you grant us each as we press on in your plan. We pray for those that aren't able to be with us this morning, regardless of the ailment or the illness, that they might find encouragement in our gathering together. For as long as it's called today, may we encourage each other. We ask for your blessings, Father, on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. May it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. The Gospel Salvation and Sanctification, Part 100. This past week's lessons have been, have been so wonderfully placed in our souls. So many encouraging words spoken. So just a few words on that first. When it comes to godly encouragement, it may vary greatly depending on the need of the moment. For example, Tuesday's message was delivered with tears, while Thursday's with great strain. Both were necessary for your sanctification. So, godly encouragement, it's not always the same package. Sometimes it's delivered with tears and pleading and just laying it all out there and seeing the soft underbelly of Christ Himself. And other times, it's the rod of the shepherd uh, coming out in full force and waking us up with great strain. Both of these things are necessary. As I've taught this multiple times in the past, balance is fundamental to the spiritual life. There's Hardly anything more damaging, in my opinion, um, than a pulpit that becomes imbalanced, than a pulpit that doesn't have the character and integrity to teach the whole truth, not just the things that are you know, palatable. And you have the privilege of 
sitting before one that does that very thing, teaches you balance. As the Spirit taught us on Thursday, there are times in our lives, everybody's like, oh, can't he focus on Tuesday? (laughs) Nope. As the Spirit taught us on Thursday, there are times in our lives when we must realize that we are nothing but spoiled little brats. And not only that, but we Americans actually take it one step further and actually celebrate being brats, giving the biggest brats a seat of honor at our tables. James, Jesus' brother, cautions us against such ungodliness. Go to James 2, one. James 2, verse 1. <clears throat> so let's, we're going to have to be honest this morning, folks. If you're not willing to be humble and honest about the estate or the current state of our own beloved country, then all of this lesson is going to fall on deaf ears. You have to be willing to be honest about these things. James 2.1, but again, it's not novel. That's good to know. It's encouraging to know that the, the things that we're going to discover through Scripture this morning are not novel things. James 2.1 My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Not much I can say about that, is there? Is this not... Is this not the American way? Was that not a picture of the American way? Who do we honor? Who do we hold up? Who do we esteem in our own country? The poor guy or the rich one? That was Thursday's message. Even so, God doesn't want to exasperate His children to the point of despair. May it never be. What God wants is to discipline us for the sake of waking us up. He wants to discipline us for the sake of waking us up. And it, you know, just loosely reminds me of, you know, the movie scenes where some guy is sleeping off a, you know, a drunk and his wife has to throw a bucket of water in his face to get him to respond to some urgent need. Well, what the Spirit stated on Thursday without much room for dodging, is that most Americans are drunk on the world, even those hearing this message. 
drunk, intoxicated in the world. The issue is that most of you who heard that message from Thursday say, we'll walk away convicted, but in the end you'll do absolutely nothing about it. Rather, you'll go back to your lifestyle. Maybe a little unsettled, but chances are you'll just take another sizable swig from the world's flask and head on back to comfortably numb or the Matrix, depending on which generation you're from, either Pink Floyd's or Neo's. It's easy because of the following truth. And this was the word that after I taught on Thursday evening, I was talking to um, Anthony and Todd, and this phrase came up, institutionalized arrogance. I was just thinking about what the Spirit had me teach on Thursday. And this phrase came up, institutionalized arrogance. Just about every aspect of American life represents institutionalized Arrogance, which is to say that social, cultural, and economic objectives are ungodly, organized to meet the desires of the flesh. That's institutionalized arrogance. In other words, every system of thinking, every system, all the, the precepts, the laws even, are all designed to institutionalize and give life to arrogance. The things we're called as Christians to avoid. But the whole American way of life is institutionalized. Arrogance. Just about every aspect of American life represents institutionalized arrogance, which is to say that social, cultural, and economic objectives are ungodly, organized to meet the desires of the flesh. So if we're honest with ourselves, looking at the vast needs of others still suffering in this world. Think of United States, think of world. If we're honest with ourselves and we consider the vast needs of those still suffering in this world, brethren even, not the rich guy or the rich lady who we give a place at the table. No, true people that are suffering on the world at the world scale. There's vast needs out there, my friends. If we're honest with ourselves, we must conclude that we are, in many ways, still lockstep with the arrogant in this world. We, this congregation, we are lockstep, in many ways, into this institutionalized arrogance. And so God's simply drawing our attention to this simple fact. And for many of us, He's now removing certain levels of comfort, even, that He had previously given us before we knew any better. So you have to stop thinking that way. Where does it say that you're entitled to maintain this lifestyle that He allowed or He gave you until He taught you a greater grace? So for some of us, myself included, He's been incrementally sort of ratcheting down things like creature comforts. Things like, well, I can do this or I can do that. And then making the right decision, whereas before I wouldn't even have thought about it. These kinds of things. And I'm not alone. And I'm not saying I'm, I've got it all. I'm just saying that in the congregation that you can see a wave starting to come over us. A certain faith being apportioned to individuals. Uh, 
And it always starts with the more mature first, this kind of a thing, or the more humble, I should say. Um, but this thing's happening in the congregation. And he's teaching us, and he's saying, well, now you know better. You know, so again, for many of us, he's now removing certain levels of comfort that he's previously given us before we knew any better, before he had implanted in us a thirst for the gospel and the Great Commission. And so as Scripture says, Luke twelve forty eight. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So just in case you missed it, flogging here means discipline. It means discipline. This means that God will discipline the person who's been well taught on the state of their own people. For example, when we American believers accept the truth about the current state of our beloved country, that's when we might be delivered. Otherwise, he's going to hold you responsible and you might very well, like Thursday, possibly like this morning, in your own life in the practical sense, be delivered or be, excuse me, disciplined. So reflect on this for a moment. And this is just Theology 101, met with practicality. Who's the God of this world? Satan is. Satan is the God of this world. So says Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4.4. Well, Wikipedia says the leader of the free world is a colloquialism first used during the Cold War to describe either the United States or, more commonly, the president of the United States of America. So Satan's the god of this world, and America is the leader of the free world. Now, if we're honest, what might we conclude about this title, leader of the free world? First, if this is indeed true, which I believe it has been for some time, not always, of course, and I don't want to get into the semantics, given the U.S. is relatively young by world standards, hard to be a world leader if you don't exist. Again, first we must conclude that if this country represents the world, it means that it represents Satan's objectives. Minus, of course, any true Christian activities occurring from within the borders. By ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20, whose citizenship is where? In heaven. Philippians 3.20. Let me say that again. First, we must conclude that if this country represents the world, it means that it represents Satan's objectives, minus, of course, any true Christian activities occurring from within its borders by ambassadors for Christ, whose citizenship is in heaven. Do I love my country? You're an idiot if you think I don't. And we might have a little talk outside afterwards. Unless it's Anthony. <laughs> then I'll just explain it kindly to him. <laughs> but if you don't think I love my country, you're just a fool. And you're looking for an excuse not to listen, but whatever. Here's the thing. If we're not willing to call a spade a spade, or in plain language, if we're not willing to call our own country out for what it is, a metropolis on the world's stage that pumps out 
horrendous amounts of spiritual sewage into the world. Oh, by the way, just a FYI, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine yesterday for a couple hours, and he said, guess what the, uh, the liberal side of the Presbyterian church did at their um, national meeting last month, or within the last month or so? National Presbyterian, mainstream denomination, right? They opened up in prayer to Allah. What? Supposedly a Christian denomination opens up in prayer to Allah. Inside the borders of the United States. So, if we're not willing to call our country, out our country for what it is, a metropolis on the world stage that pumps out horrendous amounts of spiritual sewage into the world, if we're not willing to concede this simple fact, one, by the way, that the rest of the world observes clearly, though it takes offense for a variety of reasons, both godly and ungodly, if we're not willing to concede, then we're not worth our salt as believers. Because, as I wrote in yesterday's blog titled, Character and Integrity, up here on the board, If you want to know whom you should trust in this world, those with character and integrity, then look no further than their heart for the gospel. You want to know who you need to trust in this world? Do not trust your fellow Americans, because they don't like Christ. They denounce Him on average. This country is hosting blasphemous things like I just described. We have... Politicians that are annihilating any truth that was left, even in our own constitution, any way that was integrated with, you know, Christ-like values, these things are being just decimated. That's our country. So we might as well just call it what it is. It's sad, but if we're honest and we look at all that America is currently responsible for producing and propagating ideologically in this world... Mustn't we accept the simple fact that our country is a bastion for the God of this world? I'm not talking about us. I'm not talking about the Christians. I'm talking about America. What do we stand for? Again, do I love my country? Of course I do, as I assume most of you do. But with integrity to truth in the Word of God, I say that this country is like the church at Corinth, maybe even worse. Maybe even worse. Yet, like Paul loved those in Corinth, I love those in my country, especially my brethren, who, though they are not of this country, they are in it, like I am. What I'm trying to say, what the Spirit's saying through me is simple. He's saying that while we are called to support and serve our earthly masters, a.k.a. the government, the laws, etc., this we are commanded to do. We mustn't exchange our allegiances up here on the board. We are to act like ambassadors, folks. We're ambassadors for Christ. This is not, you think the United States is the end all be all? How arrogant. But you have pastors probably on this day saying, that the United States is somehow the Christian light to the world. Are you kidding me? What, what United States are you talking about? The one that voted in the politicians we have right now? That one? 
Let's not fool ourselves, people. Let's get our act together. Let's act like ambassadors. While we are commanded by God to subject ourselves to our earthly masters, the government, the local laws, God placed us as ambassadors for Christ. We mustn't exchange our true allegiance to God for something so fleeting as a country. When we do, if we make that mistake, we're going to be disciplined. We will be disciplined. We start exchanging godliness for the foolishness that our own country stands for, we will be disciplined. Why? Because we know better. You saw a bit of that on Thursday, and just so you don't think such a thing is unique, and God forbid you think this pulpit is somehow misguided, I want to show you that God has often disciplined those He loves in order to get them back on track. Go to Proverbs 13.24. Proverbs 13.24. I just think a lot of people, a lot of folks in this congregation even, just need to reassess what it is they spend their time and energy on, after all. Are you the person who sits there as an armchair warrior, watching CNN and Fox News and all these things and just moans and groans and complains on end about how the country is just going down the tubes and this kind of thing, and yet you can't even remember the last time you gave somebody the gospel. Jesus wasn't a politician. He was an evangelist. Paul wasn't a politician. He was an evangelist. Do you get the point? We're not here to try to fight these ridiculous battles with the world because we're going to lose them. It's... The world's going the way it's supposed to go, so says prophecy. Our job is to pay attention to the souls, to try to win a few while we're here, to go out and complete the Great Commission. (laughs) Not complain about our politicians and then never do a darn thing about things that really matter as an ambassador for Christ. You're not here because you're an American. You're here because you have a citizenship in heaven. That's why you're here. Your whole mission changed the day you were saved. You were recruited by him as a soldier for Christ. Not a soldier. I've served. My son's served. Other people in here have served, right? It's not about that. It's not about, I'm not bucking the country. So get your eyes on the right things if you're confused here. This is about us getting our facts straight and then getting our minds wrapped around truth. And why are we here? Proverbs 13, 24, And if it stings, this is why. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. How about Hebrews 12, 6? Go there. Hebrews 12, 6. We just got off a mini-series on our fathers. We have a father in heaven who disciplines us because why? He loves us. And he, doesn't, he wants you to be an ambassador for Christ, first and foremost in your life. Hebrews 12.6 <clears throat> For those whom the Lord loves, He what? Oh, it doesn't say massages their back and gives them more you know, wealth and this kind of a thing. No, it says disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. Not some, every. So up here in the board for some more perspective on what the Spirit's trying to get you to think about. I love Americans, but... 
America is obsessed with money, with, quote, success, with, quote, being successful, with compiling, elevating, comparing, and superiority. These are fleshly objectives that are projected both outwardly to the world and inwardly to its citizens. Again, America is obsessed with money, with success, with being successful, with compiling, elevating, comparing, and superiority. These are fleshly objectives that are projected both outwardly to the world and inwardly to its citizens. So ask yourself, where is your citizenship? And don't just say, oh, Philippians 3.20. My citizenship's in heaven. (laughs) Really? How about your practical citizenship? Oh, well, that's a different story. You know, because where is your citizenship? Let's look at some scripture for perspective's sake. Go to Ecclesiastes 5.10. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. I hope you see what the Spirit's saying. I'm much calmer this morning than I was on Thursday. I almost blew my vocal cords out on Thursday. (laughs) But that's what people needed. What do you want me to say? I mean, look at the email I read to you. How humble is that? What do you want me to say? I'm just a vessel, man. Ladies, sorry. It's just a... Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Okay, it should be like right after Proverbs, right? Somewhere in there. Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Ah! He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. But yet our country is obsessed with it. And we're, most of us, I mean, there's a reason why, excuse my French on a Sunday morning, there's a reason why if you live in a state you're called a masshole. There's a reason for it. Why? Because you're all chasing money and you're never satisfied. And you think if you drive faster and work harder that somehow that thing's going to satisfy you. But Scripture says it's never going to satisfy you. It's just a, you just keep running faster on the wheel until exhaustion. But that's the lie. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Here's a reflection for you. Why is this church, why is this church in the hole financially? No, seriously. It's a fair question, right? Why is this church in the hole financially? It's not like we have huge bills. We pay less mortgage here than we paid rent at the strip mall place, by hundreds of dollars. How is the church in the hole, financially? It's not like we have huge bills. Maybe we just shut off the AC, let everybody sweat it out. Why is the leadership team ever distracted by such a thing? It's not like you all are broke. Maybe we ought to walk outside, pause the video, and assess the value of all the vehicles parked out there. And then we should go to each of our homes, mine included, 
and take an inventory of all the things we've purchased this last year that have nothing to do with Christ and everything to do with being a self-absorbed American. Or maybe we ought to open up our credit card statements or check our garbage cans for commercial coffee cups or food wrappers. I hope you realize the Spirit's just trying to make a point. And here it is, the American believer. Most of you would respond to the embarrassment of others in the church, knowing how ridiculously selfish you are with your earnings. Maybe even increase your giving to the church. But that will never happen because it's not the church's job to expose you. I'm never going to, come on, please. Think I'm in that game? He's never going to ask me to do that thing. But what if he did? I'd be willing to bet that people would give more if everything was exposed about how ridiculous you are and self-absorbed you are with your finances. That's one side of what he's saying to all of you right now. In light of the fact that a church like this one in Massachusetts in the United States, which is wealthy, is behind on its bills. The other side, for perspective's sake, is this. Likewise, most of you do already respond to the embarrassment of others in the world, knowing how poorly you compare to them. So you increase your giving to the world. You purchase worldly things to sanctify self by self for self. That's the American believer institutionalized arrogance. How in the world is a ministry like this behind on its bills ever? Ever! It's kind of incredible. Go to Ecclesiastes 6-7. Scripture says up here, Ecclesiastes 6-7, right? Think of Jesus who said, you know, man shall not live on bread alone. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. <laughs> it's funny because I hear so many Christians in America screaming about how this country is going down the tubes and how it's all the politicians' faults. Obama this and Bush that and Clinton this and... Everybody's pointing fingers. What a joke. These are the same people who'd rather be shamed secretly by God the Holy Spirit than publicly by their worldly neighbors. The same people who are doing virtually nothing for the Great Commission. Not even supporting a local assembly. That should be one of your absolute... First priorities. As a matter of fact, it should come before you even support your own house. This is the house of God, folks. This is as good as it gets. God wants your first fruits, not your leftovers. Just remember one simple statement of truth in the Word of God, my dear sheep. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. He's not mocked. Do not be deceived. Do not think you're hiding out in secret and that little shame that you get from God the Holy Spirit about not giving what you should give 
and instead of renewing your lease on your car a year later, you know that kind of a game. God's not mocked. Some of you might be saying to yourselves, I'm not mocking God, for I am convinced that God is satisfied with my lifestyle. Well, if that's the case, then why does that same God have you sitting here in front of this pulpit this morning? Oh, I'm sorry. Is this you? The Holy Spirit's not talking about me. If that's you, then cut it out now. You're only hurting yourself. If you think that even one part of this morning's lesson is so far as for someone other than yourself, you've already proven yourself arrogant. And lo and behold, you are the mockery the Bible talks about. The American mockery. The Christian American way, I have that in quotes. I don't even like being called a Christian anymore because of things like the Presbyterian. I mean, what the heck? I don't want to be, I don't want to be lumped in with those idiots. Just call me a believer. I believe Jesus Christ. I believe the gospel. Don't call me. I don't even want to be called a Christian anymore because of it. And because Christianity and everybody's trying to lump America with Christianity, this kind of a thing, please, please. The average American doesn't know the first thing about Jesus Christ. The Christian American way is to assume that God blesses us with wealth and such for us, as opposed to for others, that His grace is meant to be collected for self, that we have the right to be upset with God when these blessings dry up, possibly because of our own dysfunctional use of them as we fail the test. (laughs) The Christian American way is to assume that God blesses us with wealth and such for us as opposed to for others. I'm not saying that God, it's not scriptural that God will bless us, but greater love is this than lay down a life for others. We're supposed to esteem others as more important than ourselves. Hello? We're rich on the world stage. Rich. Not kind of rich. Rich. I've been there. Other people in there have been there, seen it, done it, smelled it. We're repulsed by certain physicalities that you see in this world with people that are suffering for Jesus, really. When's the last time someone threatened to kill you because you wouldn't denounce Jesus Christ? And here we have idiots holding up Muhammad Ali as an idol who denounced Christianity for Islam. And everybody's like, oh, isn't it so sad he died? What? The saddest thing is if he's in the lake of fire. Not that we can't watch him box anymore. That's the Christian American way, though, my friends. It's to assume that God blesses us with all these things for us. And then we get upset when these things are threatened. (gasps) You can't take it away. I'm entitled. I'm saved. I'm entitled. God's supposed to bless me out all the time. Tell that to the person in Africa who's dying from some creepy disease that they got out of a puddle because they had no other fresh water. And you're complaining about running out of Gatorade. It's a joke. It's honestly. You wouldn't, they don't have G2? They only have G? You know how many calories are in G? I need G2, half the calories. Look at me. Oh, I got to look American. I got to look like GQ. I got to look like, you know, 
cosmopolitan. I got to look this way. Got to get my new hat, my new, my new kicks, my new socks, my new underwear, my new hairdo. Well, not in my case. You know, whatever. It's incredible. It's incredible, the lies. The lies. And then we look in the mirror and he says, you're an idiot. Not my fault. Obama's fault. What? My parents' fault. You're 50. Definitely my parents' fault. You're 50. How long are we going to go with this thing? How long are we going to blame our parents? <laughs> they raised me poorly. Well, now here you are, listening to the Word of God. If I listen, if I hear, if I'm convicted, I can't blame anyone anymore. No kidding. Concentrate. Consider the last time you were upset about something as rudimentary to living as finances. Just seriously. Say, when's the last time you said, oh, man, this is... You complained about finances. And then ask yourselves why that was, truly. Are you seriously upset that you can't live the lifestyle that you had designed for yourself previously? Is that what you're upset about? Who says a viable need is staying in that house or that apartment when you've consistently and flippantly ignored God's prodding to support his ministries? You know, like this one. Who says he's going to continue with that thing? Maybe the test is going to end. So who says that that's a need even? Well, how about other ministries even, like Scotty's ministry, Christ Saves Ministries? There's always needs on that. Or any others that he might have said to you, so... Are you going to pass the test here? I've given you the grace. I never asked you to do anything before I give you the grace to do it with first. I've given you the grace. You were born in the United States. You have more money than most of the world. Even the so-called poor people have more money than most people in the world. And everybody seems to be failing the test. So how dare any American complain about not being able to live some lifestyle consistent with the so-called American dream? What a joke that is. Here's some scripture for you. James 4.3 You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. (laughs) That's the funniest thing. When's, When's the last time you prayed to God to make more money at work so that you could support this ministry or other ministries? When's the last time you prayed to God to make more money so that you could help more people out? Not yourself, more people out. When's the last time you prayed for those things? These are the questions he wants us to ask ourselves. See, that's un-American. It literally is. It's un-American. The American way is build up as much as possible for you so you can have the little American dream. And then no one will accuse you for be, of being a failure. You know that institutionalized arrogance that was inbred in you even in elementary school, before elementary school, and every commercial. I mean, come on. Every commercial is all about this so-called American dream. What is that all about? You're not a citizen. Your primary citizenship is in heaven. So, and if you have been 
so-called blessed in this world, here's another question to ask yourself. If you have been so-called blessed in this world, you must ask yourselves, who is doing the blessing? Is it the God of the universe, our Father in heaven, who only wants what's best for you, whose intent is that you grace others out? Or is it the God of this world? Who's going to keep on blessing you if you swindle it on yourself? Ask yourself that question. Who's going to keep on blessing you if you are anti-grace? Are you so deceived that you think the God of this world won't bless a believer's socks off? Silly sophomores. Are you so deceived that you think the God of this world, Satan himself, won't bless your socks off? Knowing what kind of ambassador you've proven yourself to be? So where are the blessings coming from? Fair question. Here's a pertinent passage on the subject of preoccupation with finances. Go to Luke 12, 13. Luke 12, 13. Who's blessing you out? Seriously. It's a fair question. Luke 12, 13. On the subject of preoccupation with finances, since that seems to be the preoccupation of America and its citizens, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. That always gets me. Someone, some poor soul dies and, and the family's fighting over the inheritance like idiots, like dogs with raw meat. People that work in the, uh, the elderly community, uh, I, I've heard this many, many times. It sickens me, actually. The, the family comes in. The mother or the father is half dead in the, in the home, right? And the family comes in, and all they can think about is who's getting the money. And all they can think about is, is alleviating how much is actually being spent day to day to keep their parents comfortable, like in, say, hospice. That's all they care about. I even heard one story. This is, this is foul. I heard one story, and I hope I'm not... I'm just going to paraphrase it. That one person went so far as to ask... If I stop giving them this pill, they'll die quicker, right? Yep. And they wanted to do that thing. That's true, right? They wanted to stop giving their own parent the bill or the pill so they would die quicker so they could have more money of the inheritance. Hail America! <laughs> well, this is in the same line, see? Teacher. Now, they got the, they got the Messiah. Come on! The Messiah, Jesus Christ, is before them. Teacher, tell me, tell my brother to divide my, the family inheritance with me. <laughs> what does he say? But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? You think that's why I came here? To arbitrate over your foolishness? Yet I bet if some of these idiots, if they, if they did get a favorable settlement, say in some inheritance, they say, Jesus loves me. I want you to see something very important here. Please listen very carefully. Remember our focus lessons a few weeks back on how to read parables? Remember those? Well, this is an addition to that. Please notice that Luke 12 begins with Jesus warning those he's teaching about buying into the lie 
of the socially aloof. And feel free to draw analogies to the average American here. And then consider verse 13 and 14, which we just read, as the practical setup. Let's call it the practical setup. As the launching pad for the ensuing parables. Up here in the board. So reading parables in context, parables in the Bible always have a, quote, setup to them that shores up the context, often in the most practical sense. It was very often Jesus would be presented with something, and instead of answering it directly, he'd say, let me tell you a parable, and this will answer that. Parables must be read in that context. So, again, here's the practical setup. Look at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Up here on the board, on those two verses, notice how the person in the crowd has completely misappropriated Jesus' purpose in his life. He's got the Messiah in front of him, and he's asking him to play arbitrator. This is the way of the average Christian American. They perceive Jesus Christ as just another utility, one that is taken advantage of on an as-needed basis, but not wholly or dependently. Again, this is the way of the average Christian American to misappropriate Jesus' purpose in their life. They perceive Jesus as just another utility, one that is taken advantage of on an as-needed basis, but not wholly or dependently. So Jesus responded the same way the Spirit's responding right now in our studies to all of you. So let's read verse 15. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So beware. And then he told them a parable. So you see the setup? I hope you see the setup. You see what was before him, and then you see the parable. So he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my, and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. Neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? 
You do not, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. The nations of the world eagerly seek these things, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, he finds them. So, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too being ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Woe then is the faithful and sensible steward whom this master will put in charge Oh, excuse me, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few from everyone who has been given much. Much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and he's talking about his cross, of course, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, But why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not, even on your own initiative, judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way 
there make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you in prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Do you see an ideology there that he's pointing out? Do you see something that could easily be mapped to our own situation in this country? I do. Nothing new under the sun, so says Solomon. Everybody's storing up stuff. Everybody's congratulating each other. Everybody's patting each other on the back. Everybody thinks they're this and that and all. God loves me. This is why he keeps blessing me out. You sure? First of all, it's the God of the universe and not the God of this world, first and foremost. Who's blessing you out? How long until (laughs) the God of this universe says, obviously this person's not learning anything, and stops blessing you, and then the the God of this world deceives you by continuing to bless you out? How long does that take? I don't know. But for some of you, it should be obvious. It's been a very long time. And you still are failing said test. Let me go quickly with you to survey 1 Timothy 6, which is what we looked at on Thursday. And this for the sake of sanctification. Go up here on the board, first of all. The context of 1 Timothy, I gave you this. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, a long-time known godly pastor who Paul had taken under his wing. Timothy was born in Lystra, Galatia, but Paul sent him to multiple churches to spread the gospel. Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. Okay, 1 Timothy 6, 1, go there. I'm going to go very quickly. Uh, if you didn't catch Thursday evening's message, uh, it's a must-have. You've got to get it. Um, today's message will make more sense, obviously, but I have to go quickly now for the sake of time. We still have to do communion service. 1 Timothy 6, 1, but it should be obvious what the Spirit's saying to all of us. We believer Americans. All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles up here on the board as I taught on Thursday. On verse 2, Paul encouraged Timothy to teach the church authority orientation to sow goodness, specifically so that it would bear fruit, reap, to the benefit of the brethren. And that, of course, is that verse I gave you previously, Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Verse 3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness appear in the board. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, the majority writer in the New Testament, made this statement around 63 AD, a few years before his death, and about seven years after he wrote the book of Romans. He still clung to the words of Jesus, regardless of who he was teaching, whether Jew or Gentile. The gospel, or a gospel, minus the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, is remiss. Verse 4, He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. 
who suppose that godliness is a means of gain up here on the board. Some believe that knowledge and or even acting piously was of some value, but that's never the case unless such fruit is motivated by true faith. Verse 6, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And that's that Greek word uh, autarkeia up here on the board for contentment. It means self-sufficiency, unflappability. In context, in verse 6, implies this person isn't focused on the gains of being faithful, rather that they are actually being faithful. Different perspective altogether. There is only peace in the light, never darkness. doesn't matter what you're doing, it's what you're motivated to do. Verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Say that to the average American. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord, of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share up here on the board. To do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. This is what it means, my friends, to be rich. Not what America tells us. America says if you have a good bank account, then you're rich. Or stuff, then you're rich. But that's not what God says. Jesus Christ himself said in Revelation, I want to say 3.18, says, buy from me gold refined by fire. He's not talking about the worldly gold, folks. Americans in general are taught to pursue wealth for a better life for self. The Bible teaches us to pursue the ability to live and share with others. The vehicle may be the same, making money, but the motivation and the beneficiaries differ completely. So the practical issue for most Christian Americans is institutionalized arrogance. That's the context, my friends. Institutionalized arrogance. The whole thing has been institutionalized. We're really good at it, by the way. That's why we're the world leader. The true test for most American believers is whether or not they will take their worldly riches. The vast majority are very wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And use those resources to the benefit of spreading the gospel. Peace evades those who refuse. 
verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be good or to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. There's a lot of people that say, I have knowledge, I love Jesus Christ, I'm this, I'm that. It's a false knowledge. And we might as well not look any further than our back door out into our own country. There's a lot of things that are falsely called knowledge in our country by so-called American Christians. So here's a few examples that I gave you on Thursday. Just food for thought. Don't make this a doctrine. It's just supposed to tease it out of you. The truth, the practical truth in all our souls as Americans. Here's some false knowledge in America that God blesses us just for us. And I added just because I don't want anybody to come back and say, oh, the Bible says that he does bless us for us. Shut up. You know exactly what the Spirit's trying to say, so stop being a moron. God blesses us, but for the morons, I put just in there. Just to be just. God blesses us just for us, as opposed to for others. America is a beacon of light to the world. We are fat cats. Passive evangelism is biblical, where we wait for others to come to us, sometimes begging for help. Some of us live in gated communities. How the hell are they even going to get to your front door, jackass? Some of you drive so fast to work and spend so much time at work, how are they ever going to talk to you? I'm serious. What do, we, what do you mean, passive evangelism? Show me that in the Bible. That's a joke. But some people, you know, it allows them to live that ridiculous lifestyle for self. That we aren't like the Corinthians when we truly are. In many ways, we're worse. And this one kills me. Idolatry is excusable because it's part of our culture. That somehow everybody's okay with this idolatry thing. Like it's actually okay. Maybe it's not. Verse 21, again, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So all of this fine work in this 100-part series is about some form of sanctification. And right now, we are on experiential sanctification. Knowing is not living. God teaches us outside of the Bible through application, through living. The truths in the Word of God become real to us when we live them. That's what the Bible has to say on the subject. You can sit there, smoke a cigar, have a little tumbler of your favorite scotch and be convicted amongst yourselves and pontificate about dispensationalism and lapsarianism. Never go out and wait for some poor, ashamed soul to come try to gain entry into what? Your little circle of ridiculousness? That's your form of evangelism? And all of you saying, I don't smoke cigars and I don't have tumblers because I hate scotch. Grow up. You know exactly what the Spirit saying to you. You're inaccessible. And institutionalized arrogance makes it that way. Why do you think all the idols in this world, when they make it, they don't even take care of their own? They live in mansions. And everybody's like, I want to be like that guy. 
and not take care of anybody behind me in my wake. I just want to get rich, 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 rich. And go, see what I see? Someday you can be like me. Ain't I awesome? That's the American way. Why do you think all the other countries, not all of them, many other countries idolize Americans? Ask Scott. He goes on a missionary trip and it's, it's goofy, right, Scott? He'll go on a missionary trip. He's like a celebrity. Scott, I mean, come on. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Right? He goes over there. World famous evangelist. I'm like, what the? He got pictures of him as a huge banner. He's like, right? Worse than that first one I showed you. He's like, right? World famous American. They're all like, does all Americans look like that? I thought they were good looking. I'm kidding. I just kid. I kid, right? Right? Why do they? Why do they? Why do they make celebrities out of us? Because the world has bought a lie. That it's something to behold when you're wealthy. It couldn't. There's not many things in this world. What is, you cannot serve God in what? Wealth. Oh, man, right? You can't. There's not many things that the Word of God picks on wealth all the time. It also picks on idolatry all the time. Why do you think that is? Because most of the time, people with wealth are idolized. People with wealth get the seat at the table. You poor person, go at the footstool. You rich person up here. I don't even care if you're not even a believer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an idol out of you. Are you Muhammad Ali? Oh, my God. Hey, believer, in the face. Push the one that's actually like, I just want a fellowship, like for real. Get out of my face. i got to idolize somebody here. That's the American way. Am I lying? Am I seeing things that nobody else sees in this world? I'm just a crackpot, right? I'm just a dude that lives in a cave. I'm just an extremist because that's how pastors are. They come crawling out of their caves, right? Every so often, like moles, right? Or the guy, the groundhog guy, right? And I and I say a few things, and you guys go, "What the heck? Is that is that dude? Are those are those chiclets or teeth? What what's the deal with that guy? Right? It's true. He can eat an apple through a picket fence. I've seen him do it. Yeah, let's just talk about stupid." Garbage, right? So you don't have to face the mirror. You don't have to face the truth. Because what's the Word of God say? Some of you are going to look in the mirror. This whole lesson was a good old-fashioned look in the mirror. And you're going to walk out that door, and it's like you have never seen that person ever again. So says Scripture. I know it's going to happen. I'm so convicted now, though. I'm so convicted. Good for you. Good for you. Then what? Oh, there's more. There's more. A lot more. This is the mash tent where you go get rekindled, where you get taught, you're equipped, Ephesians 4, 11, 12, equipped to go out to accomplish the Great Commission. That's what this is about. This isn't the end of the line. This isn't Christianity proper. You don't come in here, oh, I'm done. This is it. I went. I went to Christianity, and I went back to my old life. I looked in the mirror. I was like, Whoa! And I went back to my life. Thank God, because that was painful in there. But I guess I'll go back next week and be more Christian again inside the church. But then I'll go back out and I'll just be another Christian American. When God's saying, i got so much to teach you outside of these four walls. I want you to suffer for my name's sake. I want you to go through agony. I want you to suffer. the. I'm in, look, all right, I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm not looking forward to this afternoon that much. I mean, I am fundamentally. Maybe we can save some souls. Let me tell you something. It's not my favorite thing, even, to go out and evangelize people. 
Because, you know, you, you're probably going to get, like, laughed at. You're going to get mocked. That's not, you know, I'm just saying, I have a flesh too. If I was perfect, I'd be like, ah, whatever. But I'm not perfect. So today's a little bit, you know, I'm like, kind of like, oh, what's this going to be like, you know? It could be interesting. I'll be like, he said it. <laughs> I'm not with him. I was just sitting here for an ice cream cone. Who are you? Have you seen him? Right? Right? I'm obviously not with him. Obviously. Look at how I'm dressed. Look at my shiny bald head. My tanned skin. People are like, all right, dude, enough. You get the point. Shake it out, Americans. Shake it out. Learn to look in the mirror, laugh about yourself a little bit. You get too uptight, you're going to be exasperated, and that's not what he wants. He wants you to be set free. He wants you to see the foolishness for what it is. Whatever those things you're clinging to, it's foolishness. And he'll show you if you read the point on the board, God teaches us outside of the Bible through application, through living. The truths in the Word of God become real to us when we live them. For example, I know I'm going a little long, but that's too bad. Go to John 15, 19. Too bad, so sad. <laughs> if I'm going to go suffer this afternoon, you're going to suffer now! I've got to get all my angst out. John fifteen nineteen. Now, here's an interesting line, part A. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. But look at the line A. If the world loves its own, essentially. Okay. This is the truth, my friends, something for all of us to ponder, that the world loves its own. And you have to ask yourself, does the world love you, I guess? What does the Bible say about knowing the truth? Up here on the board, John 8.32. That is truth, by the way, that the world loves its own. What does the Bible say about truth? And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free is not merely knowledge. The truth is all that the Word says, including the commands to obey, to go evangelize, etc., etc. You know, actually go out. The righteous man shall live by faith. To actually go out, you can't fabricate it, so don't do that thing. Don't say, oh, well, Scott's going out, now I have to go out. Go out with all the wrong motivation. This whole thing is about humility. He's trying to knock you down on your knees. He's trying to knock you off that little pedestal that the world has you up on just because you're an American or you're a successful American. Mm. He's trying to knock you down. He's trying to say, I will give you faith if you're humble. But as long as you hold fast to the little podium you're on where all your self-esteem has been padded over the years, family, friends, co-workers, Aren't you just swell? That he's saying, yeah, it might be a little painful to divorce yourself from those that mindset, but that's the only way I'm going to give you the faith to do this magnificent thing 
of bringing my gospel with proper motivation out to a lost and dying world and having the joy. Is there any, ask yourselves this question right now. And I hope, I hope look, some of you probably like, I don't know. If I gave you a million dollars right now, if I had a suitcase right here, I do. Uh-oh. Right? Million dollars. Or, or, you know for a fact, you get to save one soul today. Where's your limit? Some of you are like, nah, a million bucks, not enough. It used to be a lot in the 50s, but nowadays it has to be 10. <laughs> Give me 10, I'll think about it. Okay, how about 20? How about $100 million? I'm, I'm friends with people that are, have a couple of hundred million dollars in their bank account. They don't have Christ. How about, how about, how about a billion dollars? How about a billion dollars? Seriously. You know, somebody like, man, this is, I don't know. Let somebody else save them. <laughs> right? Let's face it. Why? What do you think you're going to gain with a billion dollars? It's just like this ridiculous, it's a responsibility. The truth is not merely knowledge. The truth is all that the Word says, including the commands to obey, to go evangelize, to live. The truth includes the promises of blessings when we, quote, do, not merely hear. James 1.22. It's all he's saying, folks. It's all he's saying. We've been all doing institutionalized arrogance for years. We've all been doing the American way for years. And he's like, but you haven't been doing my word. Some of you have been talking about it, pontificating about it, even built a nice little language about it, even built a false sense of steam about it because you're so-called now better and more knowledgeable than your family. You know, they're still stuck on that religion. You know, the religion over there. That awful one with the dude with the big hat. Right? They're still stuck there. But you're stuck. Satan doesn't care. You're still not doing anything. At the end of the day, you're supposed to do. Amen? All right. Ushers, bring forth the elements. A little music.
Jesus Christ humbled himself to become a man and then was humiliated on a cross, which really means he did so much for us. Let us not swindle it by simply failing some test. Amen? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Can I get the lights, guys?
Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word and thank you for the ability to fellowship on this 4th of July weekend. Thank you for keeping us safe. Thank you for truly providing us a blanket of freedom from a citizenship that exists in heaven in such a way that from eternity past you knew that we'd all be members. Thank you for the opportunity and the ability to repent, to be saved, to stick around so that we might be given the privilege and the honor of giving the gospel to a world that seems to be accelerating, Father, away from you. Thank you for revealing us to us the scripture that proves how deceived the world is and who the great deceptor, Satan himself, is. Thank you for revealing these things to us and for changing our hearts in such a way that we might resist him and that he might flee from us. And it's in those times that we are able to glorify you, God, in time. Thank you for this privilege. We do pray for traveling mercies as we each head on back, hopefully convicted, but not just academically, but convicted to do. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.